Hey Phil. Hey Laurie. I just need to, you know, try and make sure the spicy pot chips I'm eating don't affect my vocal delivery. I'm being very careful about the way I speak. They were quite warm, but I think I'm slowly bringing up the tolerance of hot spicy stuff. You can handle in my the spice. stomach, yeah. Well, you're a bigger man than me, Phil. Listeners, welcome to episode 37, season two, Super Betty Bros in Movie Land podcast. We've got some good films to go through this week. Good. I hope they're good. Anyway, Phil, you've seen more than me. I've seen Detroit and The Dark Tower, Idris Elbo and uh, his Stephen <laughs> King adaption. Very good. And I've been to see The Limehouse Golem with Bill Nighy, who I discovered basically subbed in for Alan Rickman, who became terribly ill after being cast. Right, okay. That's the one which is written by Jonathan Ross's wife, isn't it? Jane, Jane Goldman. Goldman That's who good. wrote... Uh, Kick-Ass. Yes, and... Stardust. Yeah. Screenplay. Yeah, I like, I like Stardust very much. Still not seen Kick-Ass, but we can come to that later. Uh, we're also going to do what we've been watching. I have been watching Roadhouse, the 80s camp classic starring Patrick Swayze. And Phil, you've seen? Well, I've been continuing my recent trend of catching up on films which you've reviewed, but I yes. haven't seen. And so I've seen Colossal. With uh, Anne Hathaway. And Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis. Sudeikis. Jason Sudoku. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Has anyone made that joke? I know, it's, it's good not even really a joke. <laughs> I like it. Uh, but I mean, listeners, all this pales in comparison to the biggest cultural uh, moment of the last week in which... And Phil, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to tell you what I'm referring to. You're talking about, of course, the... Uh, the big white tent in the, the very expensive field. That's right. The Great British Bake Off uh, on Channel 4. I mean, this signaled, <gasps> Phil, the end of Britishness, the end uh, of headline United news, Kingdom. Really, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah. Headline news. British values have gone to pot. Anything that's not on the big British broadcasting corporations channel it can't be British. I mean, that. do you, do you remember the outcry? It's been ongoing, my friend. Did you not see Noel Fielding when he tweeted no. as a joke that he wasn't going to actually eat the cakes? That caused quite a Twitter storm. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, I am outraged, Phil. Do you know, I mean, <laughs> my outrage was so palpable that what I thought we should do on the Super Betty Bros show and talked about for months and months and months was that before the show actually went live on Channel 4, we should do a little spoof of it. A and, little you know, impression, a prediction of what it'd be like. Play on everyone's fears about what <laughs> Channel 4 might do to our beloved British icon. And, you know, it was going to be like, uh, Dear Four in the Tent. Kitty is still outside and refuses to put her clothes on after last night's naked bake off. Got it? <laughs> yeah. That would have been funny, That's wouldn't it? That's a very good little accent. Was it? I, All right. I, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I, think, I think that would have been funny. I think it would have worked. I think it would have made us a viral smash. But it just didn't happen, <laughs> Phil, because we couldn't get our act together. Classic as, Bailey Bros. As is always <laughs> the way. Unless the, unless the idea comes a minute before switching on the record <laughs> button, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, you still owe Benedict a little um, Avatar film. So I, do, I, I do, I do, I do, I do. Yes, sorry. Yes. Well, it's busy time. No, you're on How holiday. long can I play? How long you can I play? On the holiday. <laughs> How long can I play the engagement card? None. None. It's over. It's, it's, well, you no, the engagement's over. But. Well, no, no, no. All right, enough rubbish, uh, listeners. We've also got your emails and tweets uh, towards the end of the show. Thanks very much for being in touch. And actually, we should say at this point, shouldn't we? Uh, I am I'm cutting back on the reviews I'm doing, the print reviews I'm doing, which also means I'm going to be getting to less film screenings, which therefore means that Super Betty Bros is going to be less sort of current, isn't it? More reflective. Yeah, so not giving reviews the day that films are released, but giving reviews a little while afterwards, which I think might be a good thing. Gives you time as well to email in listeners with your thoughts before the Super Baby Bros get in and start fuddling with your thoughts and opinions. Exactly. You can give your own and be authentic and original like yourself. Which is back in the classic days, really, isn't it? That's how the show started out. Indeed, yeah. I mean, sometimes we'll still have the premiere releases coming out and all that sort of stuff. Premiere. But, premiere, um, but for the most part, yeah, it'll be films that have been out for a little while. 
So do get your thoughts in. If you go and watch something this weekend from Friday, get your thoughts in. Because SuperBaileyBros at gmail.com or you can tweet us at SuperBaileyBros. Exactly. And we'll be able to read that stuff out during the reviews. Uh, final bits of business. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash SuperBaileyBros. And Phil's already read out the email and the tweets. I don't think there's anything more to say. Oh, Phil, sorry. I just got to take that. That's the that's the banker. The banker? From, uh, yeah, from uh, what's it called? Nolan His Boxes. What's the show? What's the show <laughs> Nolan His Boxes. Red that's Box the official name. What's it called? What's it called? I'm not telling deal you. or no deal? Yeah. Deal or no deal? Uh, sorry, can I just talk to the banker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't want to tell him that. <laughs> okay, all right. Hey, you're the boss. All right, okay. Bill, he's giving you an offer. What's the offer? I mean, I tell you, he was being very cheeky about it, but <laughs> he knows what kind of character you are. He yeah, can see he that does. you've got you've got a system. I've got and a, you're wink, sticking to a wink in my eye. Yeah, and he's, he's seen that, and so he's going to offer you a Super Betty Bros show. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, hmm. That is the day of my mother's birthday, so that, that's a special it's special same, number in my head. Day, yeah, right, same day, thirty-six. Same, yeah, same, right? No month after. I'm going to deal. He dealed on a Super Baby Bros show. Wow, we got so much to look forward to. Phil, how do you feel? Fantastic. Laurie, what do you know about Detroit? Uh, well, I know a little bit because I had to do the radio last week. 12th Street Riots, 1967, Detroit. Or are you talking about the city? Just the city. <laughs> okay. Uh, nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. Is Detroit now very deprived? Uh, it but it wasn't always. Very deprived. Right. It's, I remember when I was doing my university degree, I saw uh, a picture of Detroit back in the heyday when it was producing all those cars and it was a massive motor city. The motors. Right. Yep. And then looking at downtown today, and it literally is almost like post-apocalyptic in terms Seriously. of... Seriously? In terms of the buildings just have vanished. Like boarded and up. And they're all derelict. And, and so the, the main part of Detroit is just kind of hollow and nothing's really there. Uh, what else have you heard about Detroit? Um, is it famous for music? I think it is. Isn't there a Detroit music scene? Style? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Blues, am I right? Is that the kind of Motown. thing? Motown. A Motown. All right, sure. in this film. I mean, that's it, Phil. I'm out. At home place of Eminem. Right, there we go. How about that? Mm. I'm the real Stim Shady. Mm. How's that? <laughs> this is taking a wrong sort of turn. Well, come on, I told you, I'm out. Anyway, Detroit is, as Laurie said, will you tell me the bit about what Detroit is actually about? Yeah, so this is 50 years after the 12th Street riots. Um, there was, I think, the police down there... Yeah, so listeners, according to Phil, I can't tell you the historical information because it spoils the film. History has already happened, man. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know about this history, right, do okay, you? So Did you know go. about it before this film highlighted it? No, I looked it up because I had to talk about the film. Yeah. Le- All right, so it's about 12th Street riots. There were riots in Detroit. The police got involved and there were some terrible things that went on. And then afterwards, there was a real problem with the way that the way that the police handled things and allegations of maybe they were lying about it and you know it all snowballed into a terrible beacon of racial prejudice of the time yep yeah no spoilers that, that time phil that was very good that's i put kind the spoiler of... bit at the end and people can hear how detailed i got yeah. it right. it's literally it's literally a synopsis for the film so <laughs> uh i'll put it right at the end of the episode so yep as laurie says that's all the sort of background history of it all going on and in some ways this film is just focusing on one little aspect of it the algiers motel the film is really in three acts. You've got the opening act, which sort of gives you an establishing arc to what's been preceding this event. And that's lots of black communities moving into the urban areas, the cities, and the, the white majority police force not really getting on well with that. 
progression in the cities. As Laurie, you might have heard in Laurie's little summary, there is this sort of riot that emerges because of a party. Uh, the police go in and raid it. It's an unofficial party. It hasn't got the licenses. And so they take everyone away. And while that's going on, the rest of the community comes out and starts throwing bottles and uh, harassing the police and saying, we, what are you doing? They haven't done anything wrong. It's just a party. Leave them alone. This then progresses into looting, and this leads to a massive incident where the, the National Guard goes in, the army goes in to try and sort it out. It's sort of boiling point got reached because of the simmering tension that was just there already. Exactly. So the first part of the film is really showing how that riot emerges and how quickly, out of nothing, it sort of becomes this major incident that massively affects the whole of uh, Detroit City. And at one point, one of the characters, Will Poulter's character actually, says, oh man, it's like Vietnam out here because there's fire everywhere, there's destruction, people are looting and, and, and stealing from shops. And it's just a sort of chaos. And the police are chasing after anyone who's, who's going doing anything illegal whatsoever. That's the first part. Then the second part is the uh, major incident of the film, which is, happens in the Algiers Motel Hotel. And then the third part is the aftermath. I think from the trailers, you'd assume that the whole film is that middle section. Right. Um, that's the, the one which involves John Boyega, who's a local um, security person who's trying to protect a shop that is could be looted during the riots. He's there with a gun and, and another buddy, but he gets involved in this situation. You've got Will Poulter as one of the, the major police people, police officers who decides that there's an incident going on in the hotel that he is going to investigate and pursue in his own way to the extreme to find a culprit who right. may have been shooting at the police and the army and things like that. And then you've got the, the people themselves who were just staying there, guests who ended up there. You've got a mixture of different people. There's an, a war veteran. There's some slightly shady types who seem to not get on well with the police. You've got some people who were part of a band who were just rocking up to the motel. You've got some white girls who are there and seem to be drifters using their parents' money to go around the place. Yeah. Uh, you, probably the biggest name actor-wise in that scenario is Anthony Mackie. He plays one of the... Uh, people he's the guy in the avengers film who plays falcon yep but anyway that's just all background information i think probably the most important thing to note about the people behind this movie is catherine bigelow is the director mm. and then her longtime collaborator mark bowl bowl b-o-a-l yeah that's right they work together on the hurt locker and zero dark 30 yeah so those are the two biggest films probably that catherine bigelow has done yeah in recent years it's sort of a true story but well, that sort of is a bit of a problem what does it say about itself so I didn't know if it was a true story going into the beginning of the film. It didn't have a title card saying this is based on a true story or anything right. like that. But as the film progressed, I wondered if it was a true story because there's something about a true story where events happen in an unusual way, an unpredictable way, not a movie way. Yeah, sure. And so things, narrative threads just seem to end and begin unexpectedly. Well, I mean, it's interesting that they, they haven't put that up there. I suspect in America, no one needs to be told because this is the 50 year anniversary of a very famous event. In England, I don't know. Maybe they're just assuming the press will do that job for them. Uh, Mark Bowl is a journalist as well as a screenwriter. So I think that might account for what you're talking about. I, th I think it's more important for him, for the film to have integrity as a journalistic piece than, uh, than a dramatic one, perhaps. Mm. Shall we play a little clip? This is uh, one of the more low-key moments. This is John Boyega, who, uh, as I said, is guarding a store and he sees the the army come in and they take a take over a building nearby just to sort of keep it secure and he decides as a as a black guy with a gun in detroit at that time he wants to make sure that he they know he's on the right he's side. wearing like a security guard he's, uniform yeah exactly yeah. but still he wants to try and keep them friendly towards him nice so he goes over and takes him some coffee hey fellas melvin desmukes 
I'm with United Security. I'm going to that grocery store across the street. I come bearing gifts. Oh, thank you. That's nice boys. Hey, all things considered, this is pretty good. Thank you. I don't have my usual appliances. Mm. I ain't got any sugar. I don't push it, man. If we're watching that, the camera is slightly shaky, the lighting is very dim, and there's kind of high contrast with uh, stuff coming through windows, right? Lots of shadow, all that kind of thing. It does look like they're filming it as if it's the Hurt Locker, as if they're in a war zone. I That certainly is the vibe of the film. It feels a bit like a war movie. Then it shifts again into that middle act where it feels almost like a nightmare, like this horrible scenario. And then it shifts again. The three acts that I mentioned in the intro, I think are really distinctive parts of this film and it shifts and moves i think certainly the way it's shot it's it's almost trying to be documentary style right and it's it's spliced together with actual footage actual stills of the incident of the riots and there's an attempt to sort of blend it all together to make this dramatization almost uh almost like you'd see on crime watch or something like that got it of what happened, a recreation, reenactment of what and actually happened. The key event is that central part, right? Which is why that's what the trailers focus on and everything else. And this is people being rounded up in the hotel and being intimidated. Is that fair enough to say? Not a spoiler? That's completely fine to say. There was shots fired for some reason from what is believed to be the Algiers Hotel motel. And so these police people go in and they decide that they are going to find whatever it takes. They're going to find out where this gun is, who shot it and make them accountable for it. And they'll use whatever means they deem is appropriate. And stuff escalates horribly, basically. Horribly, horribly, horribly. Will Poulter is excellent in this film. He's the guy, listeners, who has the very strange eyebrows. He looks very young. Yeah, and he's been in The Revenant and The Maze Runner. Yeah, he's got a very distinctive face, and he's on British TV, and he's managed to progress all the way to this big film. He is brilliant in it. He's really? utterly despicable and horrible throughout and yet, still, he conveys some nuance to his character. Let's, sorry, I mean, the reason I'm laughing, listeners, is that uh, when we watched the clip earlier on, the video that YouTube suggested we watch next, uh, was Will Poulter saying the difficulties of playing an evil racist. So I don't think there's any ambiguity about the character he's portraying. And yet there is, because you have some little window into what he's going on to in his brain and his approach to life. And actually the script in the, the opening act, before it gets to this main incident almost hints that there's some sort of weird, bizarre twisting of an ideology that drives him. So you think he's been manipulated and, well, to use the popular phrase at the moment, radicalised, right? And he's just gone crazy with it. Sort of. And then also the the events that lead up to this incident for him are fleshed out so that it gives some context to why he's acting the way he is. And yet it's this wonderful bit of casting it has to be given to the casting director because of his frame because of his his face he looks quite boyish yeah and quite weedy and yet at the same time he's a tall guy all of those things combine really well to convey this weird mix of a weakling nerd nerdy sort of dweeb who's got this immense amount of power and this horrible authority that he is going to push through and they all kind of coalesce to make this this character that really brings to life the situation and makes it believable and also horrifying. Right. And do you think, um, given the state of things right now, especially in America, that is a very conscious decision to try and paint a fairly complex portrait of racial prejudice right now as well? Is that what the film's doing or is it more focused on the 60s? I think it is showing really the relationship between black people and the police. 
I think that in well, America... Today or back in the past, that's what I mean. Ongoing. I think right. it's a relationship that hasn't really changed. There's a wonderful scene in the movie in which one of the guys who's staying at the motel basically explains to one of the white girls who's staying in the motel what it's like being a black person and dealing with the police. Right. And he basically says, once somebody's got a gun to your face... It changes the whole conversation. Yeah. And if they're pointing a gun at your face, uh, then how are you meant to act? What are you meant to say in that situation? It's terrifying. And then also the fact that the police will say, this is my street. This is where this, what are you doing in my city? And yet it's, whose city does it belong to? Is it the police's or the people that live there? Yeah, right. And it it was, that was probably one of my favourite scenes in the whole movie because it actually gives a little window into the relationship and why it would be so tense. And at the same time, it does portray... The rioting is really quite horrible and ugly because people are just looting their own town. They're looting yeah, the shops right. that are part of their community. And also they're, they're just saying burn it to the ground. They're burning businesses. They're burning car garages. And you think, why? Why on earth would they do that? And why would they react so quickly to the police intervening? Why would that mean that they would harass firemen who are putting out the fires? And so I think the film is very good at portraying this... Like the crazy outpouring of hatred and tension and how it defeats and it's just, everybody. Yeah, right? and it's just yeah. destructive and it's horrible hideous. and vile. And I think that kind of leads on to my point or my issue with the film. It's not a pleasant watch in, in any way whatsoever. I really just wanted it kind of to come to an end because I was kind of tired of how exhausting it was dealing with somebody so unreasonable, so despicable, so blinkered to their own view of what a situation is and the fact that they they're going to pursue their own ideas to the to a horrible extent to beating people to intimidating them to threatening them and just no sense of humanity to it at all horrible man i mean this is the kind of thing that keeps me from watching films like 12 years a slave because it's just the impression i get is unrelenting misery and like you say you don't you don't really want to watch that you don't want to watch someone act out their hideous racial prejudice however misguided it may be, it's not a pleasant watch. But at least did you feel like you learned something? Yeah, and so I think the film does have something to say. And I think the building up of the riot is wonderfully directed and and really conveys the speed and and the intensity of which something can kind of swirl and start setting alight this tension, this bleeding out of anger and hate. So I think it does a really good job of illustrating that. It wasn't a pleasant watch, but the acting during that middle section was fantastic and the casting altogether is great i think john boyega is kind of a nothing character well that's what i was just going to say like everything you're talking about it doesn't sound like he was a real person uh, from the event so it? he was involved in the situation but he kind of doesn't have anything to do i'm surprised that he would want this role maybe this is a role he got on the back of star wars before star wars came out mm, yeah. and there's not really much to him to his character they don't really ever use his his point Except for a counterpoint, because he's a, a, a black guy in military yeah, yeah. uniform, an official uniform, he gets treated differently by the white uh, cops and things. And he gets called an Uncle Tom by the, the people who are being interrogated and uh, held there. Sure. So he's a counterpoint, but as a character, he's not really got much to do. He doesn't really contribute that much to the story. And so I was surprised that he, as probably the second biggest name in the film, doesn't really have much to do. You notice I haven't really mentioned the third act at all in the film. No, you haven't. And that is because that's when the film really started crumbling for me because you get this unrelenting wave of difficult, uncomfortable, nightmarishness all hitting you and then eventually it kind of dissipates. It just disappears. As with most true stories, there isn't really a satisfying ending. 
it kind of just naturally it just ends bizarrely and unexpectedly and then that's the point in which the film begins its third act which is the aftermath of these choices that these police officers made and the, the unfairness in treating these these people interrogating that way and so you get a little bit of a court sequence that is really rough and quick and brief and it doesn't really engage with any of the ideas that it raised in the first two acts is that because it's using real dialogue maybe and it might just be reflective of everything i think it just plows through it and that's where john krasinski turns up as a lawyer it just plows through the events and it just doesn't give you any time or nuance to to the situation and it feels very thin and then you get to the very end of the film which is that famous black and white title card right and it says that there is no official record of what actually happened at that event there's no official account for how things went down. Well, and this is the horrible controversy of it all because it really shows you that the people in power there managed to suppress the real account by and whatever, that, yeah. And that is true. That is it's an awful thing. But it means that once you know that there's this idea of it being... Not, no, I don't want to call it hearsay, but that idea of it being constructed from what different people say... Yeah. It means that all the tension, all the, the drama of what you just witnessed, all the unpleasantness that's been really hard to endure feels a bit empty and a bit just unsatisfying. There's no conclusion to really what's going on. There's no discussion of what the actual aftermath of this event is. There's no dissection of what it means for the broader community in the broader world. It just becomes an incident that's awful and there's still not really a sense of But maybe that's entirely deliberate because they've made you feel a certain way by presenting a possibility of the events and now they've made you feel the outrage and the frustration that actually you can't know exactly Mm. what happened and that there wasn't a satisfactory outcome and maybe that's the whole point. 50 years on, it's still not really been resolved properly. Mm. it's it's a difficult film i didn't really know what to make of it and i i thought it was very well directed very well performed very well shot i think the script is lacking unfortunately in in the fleshing out of the characters the fleshing out of the wider concerns of the the rioting i think your little spoiled intro that you did in some ways gave you more information than the film did about the broader context but there you go i think that's a slight failing of the film maybe it's as you say for american audiences they know very well what happens and all the things going around it so they don't need it spelled out for a british audience uh i think it needed to work a bit harder to really give you a stronger grasp on what the implications of this all was sure all right what's the grade man for me i think i'd give it a b minus it probably would have been higher if it had been um, maybe this is unfair on the film if it had had an official this is what happened or a bit more of a restrained hand if it doesn't know exactly what happened okay so what you think of the way it's made is a mismatch with what's actually known yeah and i think it means that the rug slightly gets pulled out from under it and it and it leaves you not really knowing what to do with it because you feel outraged and you, you don't feel i don't feel that I can properly be outraged because I don't know exactly what happened. Sure. Okay. Understood. Well, and Phil, you know, as your little bonus here, unless you've got actual bonuses, I'm curious to put you on a political spotlight for a minute there, because what do you think the impact of this film would be in the current sort of climate? Because this is just after the horrible Charlottesville stuff. And this is kind of a big deal right now. What with Black Lives Matter and everything? Yeah, just all those movements. And in particular, denouncing, quite rightly, white supremacists and and all that sort of stuff. It certainly has something to say in that environment. And I think, as with most historical things, it really, it stays relevant, doesn't it? It very much, you can see the parallels to what's going on and uh, the mistrust of the police in America versus communities I think for white people, it's a very insightful docu, kind of documentary film almost. 
but at the same time, it's made by a white woman, and you wonder if written it's, by a white man, yeah. yeah. And, and so another you, white woman, yeah. And so there's this sense in which is it is it are we kind of perpetuating the same things where white people dictate what it is being black in America? There we go. I mean, that's a, that was like Radio Four level well, stuff. Well, I did. It? It's well done. Sorry, I put you right on the spot. Well done for it. But I mean, I think that's the point of a film like this, isn't it? As you say, it's certainly not to entertain. It's a horrible experience, but it should be to provoke. Uh, listeners, let us know your thoughts. I know uh, I chatted to some people who listened to the show just last week, um, and we'd love to know your thoughts. Superbellybros at gmail.com, at Superbellybros on Twitter. Do you have any actual bonuses, Phil, or it sounds like it was too serious for that? I don't, I don't really have a bonus. It is a very serious film. Um, something I wrote down on my phone, which I want to say because I was quite, I think it sums up the film quite well. Just it, your headline. Yeah, it's a true story, but with uncertain truth. And so what do you do with that? There we go. Something for you to ponder, listeners. Okie dokie. Phil, The Limehouse Golem is a film starring Bill Nye and written by Jane Goldman, as we said, who wrote Kick-Ass and Stardust as well. Also stars Olivia Cook, who is perhaps not a very familiar name right now, but she's going to be in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Ah, uh, right, okay. So she may well be a rising British talent. It's also got Douglas Booth in it, and I'm sure that name doesn't ring any bells for you, but he was in the Riot Club, and he was also one of the strange intergalactic royal family members in Jupiter Ascending. Really? Yeah, he's one of these sort of square jawed, probably from Eton uh, English actors. Um, and they are the sort of principal cast for this film. It's set in Victorian London, and there's a serial killer about the streets, particularly in Limehouse, an impoverished district. It's kind of trying to do a Jack the Rippery thing before Jack the Ripper was actually around, and an inspector is called on to investigate the case. In particular, the police department think we've got no leads whatsoever and no idea what to do with this horrible serial killer, but the public really need to know that we're doing something. So what we should probably do is bring in an unpopular inspector who can take the fall when we fail to find the killer right hence they hire inspector kildare who is bill Nye, and he is a maligned generally belittled inspector although he's risen fairly high he's not really very well respected that is for, for a specific reason which he might come on to later and so they throw the case at him and he realizes that he's been given a dead case really that he's unlikely to make any progress on because they want a full guy at the same time, Olivia Cook's character, Elizabeth Cree, has been arrested on suspicion of poisoning her husband who died, John Cree. So she's in, in the cells and he interviews her because her husband looks like he might have been linked into some of the facts around the serial killer case. And he becomes kind of transfixed by her and he doesn't understand why she's in prison because he's certain that either she didn't kill her husband or if she did, she had very good reason for it. So suddenly he's got this kind of opportunity to turn both expectations around, show the police department they're wrong by solving the case and finding the horrible killer and also exonerating Elizabeth Cree, who he believes shouldn't really be imprisoned, uh, especially because of the hard life she'd had, all that sort of stuff. And then Douglas Booth's character is Dan Leno or Dan Leno and he's right in the middle of it all. He's important because the book this is based on is the Limehouse, oh, Dan Leno and the Limehouse Golem, which is a Peter Act novel came out a long time ago it's very popular and he's much more pivotal role in the novel it would seem dan lino is a real historical comic actor from the period and he dresses up in drag and does comic performances at a local playhouse and this is what douglas booth does in the film that's who douglas booth is yeah and elizabeth is kind of involved with him at one point she gets brought into the acting thing and uh, bill nye's character interviews douglas booth as well in the course of the investigation does that sound all clear phil or have i made that complicated i think it's quite clear especially if we play a trailer should we play a trailer yeah, and we're playing a trailer because none of the clips really kind of do the job. In fact, one clip is almost entirely one of Dan Lino's songs, <laughs> which doesn't translate really when you can't see.
can't see him in drag doing the comic stuff. So here is the trailer. I'm Inspector Kildare of Scotland Yard. I'm investigating a series of deaths. They're calling them the Limehouse Golem Murders. At Ratcliffe Highway, he slaughtered a household. The previous week, a prostitute. And the Golem's a madman. Even madness has its own logic. Inspector Kildare, I may have found an eyewitness in Limehouse, sir. I can't tell you what I know. Just assist me. I promise I won't let anything happen to you. Who was here on September the 24th? There were four men that day. John Cree. Dan Leno. George Gissing. Karl Marx. The newspaper said it was your first murder case. The Yard is setting me up as a scapegoat. The public want blood. The Golem provides it. He who observes spills no less blood than he who inflicts the blow. It's a message to us. How many more people have to die before the golem is caught? You keep my secret, and I'll keep yours. The golem is still at large. Wasting my time could cost lives. I believe the golem is after me. I shall stop this. I guarantee it. We all wear pantomime masks, do we not? Here we are, again! Now, Phil, uh, your comment to me after listening to that trailer was Master of the House. Do you want to explain that for the listeners? <laughs> That's Les Miserables and the... Uh... Well, Sasha Baron Cohen did that in the film version, didn't he? Yeah. I really didn't like that Why didn't song. you like that? It just it just seems like so over the top. It's it's kind of what I imagine somebody who's not British would do for a British accent. As if that is what the Britain 1800s like, in Britain were yeah. like. Yeah. Oh, hello, master. Like, yeah. It's just hello, a bit cheesy Carter. over the top. There is something really strange, listeners, about that period uh, when it comes to theatre especially. There's this really weird kind of invented world in which these geezers all that like that hello darling oh you know that kind of thing i don't buy it phil i think it's something that the theater has convinced us was real uh, about london in the time and i find it kind of annoying to watch for the same reason that you're talking about so that didn't help me engage with it because douglas booth plays stanley note exactly like that like he's in lame is the entire time Weirdly enough, even though with my natural dislike for that, he's the thing I like the most really? about the film. This is a career low performance from venerable actor Bill Nye. I think he can't hide the poor quality of the script. I think he is not suited to playing a sympathetic character out on the fringe. I don't think that's what Bill Nye, you hire Bill Nye to do. You know, it makes sense that he's stepping in for Alan Rickman, who probably would have played this with a lot more gravitas and believability. But it's just there's nothing about his character that works for me at all. He's a total foil and a boring one, in my personal opinion. I was really disappointed. Here's an example of the script that really makes me think that, Phil. So there's a moment where he and his police constable partner are in the dark London streets and they see uh, one of their suspects chatting to some disreputable characters in a place that's kind of grimy and he shouldn't really be there. Mm. So they hide in the shadows of a sort of archway and they watch and they see this conversation. And his police constable starts to go towards them as been to say, oh, what's going on here? And Bill Nye puts his hand on him to stop him doing that. That is all that needs to be said, isn't it? What, what, do you, what does that communicate to you? 
what we're watching wait 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 see how yeah, this plays I'm, out exactly i'm the experienced inspector we wait and watch so not but this is how the script works he puts his hands on him and he says i want to see where he goes he shouldn't be here at this time of night. It's really helpful of him to tell us that, isn't it? Don't you think? And it's really, it's really believable uh, of that character. That is the caliber of script we're talking about. And Bill Nye, I think on the nose. he must know it because uh, I just couldn't handle. I was so disappointed in his performance. It was really, really bad. And then I hated everything else about the film. Everything except, like I said, Dan Leno's fine. The set dressing's great. The evocative spirit of old London is really wonderful. It looks really believable. It looks really spooky. The sort of stage, the comic stage house is like wonderfully lit. The camera work is quite nice in the way that it pans around and gives you a view of what is actually quite an obstructive stage. It's very cleverly filmed. The story is hideous and boring I I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I don't understand what Jane Goldman is doing. The fact that the script is the worst bit doesn't make sense to me because she is a proven talent, right? Yeah, she knows how to write a film. But maybe this is her run away with it or something. I, to, to be honest, Phil, I, I'm really struggling to figure out why and how this film got made. And, you know, the I don't really want to say it, but I think one of the major reasons I think it's been made is an incredibly misguided belief that somehow this is about strong women because Elizabeth Cree is an important character. As well as we see this investigation going on, as he has his conversations with her in the cells, we also see flashbacks of her life up to that point because she's this kind of intriguing character. So we see her on the docks as a young girl. Mm. She gets terribly treated all the way through her life, but she loves the stage and the theatre. So she eventually worms her way into Dan Lino's crowd and ends up on stage herself doing things. And that's okay, but it sort of sucks the tension out of a murder investigation something that might work in a book written by peter Ackroyd that's supposed to be reflective and have a bit of social commentary not so much in your feature film i have to say especially a murder mystery yeah right and then the, so as well as the investigation as well as the backstory you also have sort of theoretical crime watch-esque uh, visualizations of the murders that are being investigated as kildare theorizes that one particular person could have done it we watch that person commit the murder you watch the murder in a horrible and way they are the most unpleasant horrible murders i have ever seen in have ever seen in film i was disgusted maybe the filmmakers want to pat themselves on the back with that i have never seen anything more thoroughly unpleasant in my life and what i've seen a lot of films well, and this is an absolute disgrace, Phil. The BBFC at one point had rated it a 12. And now I think the highest rating I've seen is a 15. It should be an 18. Be you know, safe. I don't think I'm a prude, Phil. I've seen lots of films. Yeah. I watched Roadhouse, which is an 18. And this is a 15. It is a disgrace. BBFC, you should hang your head in shame. If any 15-year-olds go and see this, I, well, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let my, any 15-year-old anywhere near it. I think it is hideous and a disgrace. Should I does, say any more bad words? Does, is it because the film direction is indulging in the murders? Yeah, yeah, more than any I've ever seen. So it's what's interesting is that the point after the mystery has been solved, you still see a visualisation of it and a very detailed and very slow one at that. I don't know what this film thinks it's doing. Normally, like a horror film like this, a gothic horror like this, has redeeming qualities. So, as uh, such as really sort of lush characterizations, very colourful characters and settings, and really evocative and really, really mysterious. All that. And kind normally, of stuff. somebody who's very sort of good and wholesome. Yeah, right. I, and 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 that that builds up tension, doesn't it? Because that you, you're waiting for it all to fall good apart. Good and evil. In a yeah. Way. This isn't that at all. All the characters are wet and, and flat and uninteresting. And, and you know, it was well exemplified as well by the fact that 
Peter Aykroyd's novel involved Karl Marx and George Gissing, who were obviously very well-known writers of the mm. period, turning up as characters in this part of London. And Kildare's investigation leads him to potentially suspect them at different points, and he has to go and chat to them. So at one point, I think you see a visualisation of Karl Marx committing a murder. <laughs> I think that's right, unless I've got that wrong. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? Great idea for a novel. The film, like just doing that, it just wrecks it because it sort of takes away the literary irony of the whole thing. And mm. instead, they're just a character in a film. They don't have time to spout some kind of philosophy or ideology that causes the reader to reflect on the satire of the novel. Instead, they're just a character in a murder plot. Mm. So I think everything about it is wrong. It just think, all fails. I think the pacing account. is wrong. I think it's dull. I think it's boring. I think the performances are kind of average, but not the fault of the actors, just the fault of the script. I think Olivia Cook is actually pretty good at what she does. I think Douglas Booth is pretty good at what he does. Bill Nye, as I've said, no, not even close. But yeah, I think it's the most loathsome two hours I've ever spent in a cinema hall. And I I hated it. What's the grade? A D, yeah. E. I think it's poor as well as me hating it. I don't think it's well made. So you strongly recommend not seeing this in Absolutely, any way? Absolutely, I would avoid it. I would avoid it at all costs. And I've said this in the review I had to write, sadly, about it as well, which is that unless you are a devotee of the horror and particularly the gothic horror, period horror sort of genre, I would avoid it. If you love misery, then maybe you'll enjoy it. But the thing is, there's no humour and there's no life. There's no colour. There's nothing make it enjoyable and i've seen a lot of people on sort of uh, you know on that youtube clip we saw underneath everyone's saying oh i you know i haven't been in this period for a long time i love the costumes i love the feel of it there's something enchanting about that sort of time period isn't there yeah london looks great but it's such a horrible story and a boring one at that that it's just going to ruin it for you the setting falls away and it's replaced by this mind-numbing horrific mediocrity yeah there you go i think that's the most most vocal I've ever heard you about a film in the sight of it. I mean, and maybe it's partly because it was more horror than I'm used to seeing, but I have seen films like that before mm. and that at least have the sort of honesty not to pretend that they're doing anything else. They just get on with it. This film, like, I've never seen more trigger words uh, in a script either. Like, the phrase white knight is used several times. Uh, there's, there's so many nods to the current wave of feminism that I think it defeats itself. Like, if you want to do that, you want you need to do it subtly. It needs to be something that commits a powerful message. It doesn't just use the lingo and throw it at you as if that's some kind of excuse. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I hated it. Maybe we should stop there. Yeah. Phil, two strange things occur to me about this film. Number the one dark is tower. yeah, the dark. Sorry, the dark tower. I haven't seen any trailers for it at all. I've seen about fifty million. It's because you're at these screenings, and I have to go. Uh, to the actual cinema to watch my films. You, has this been trailed a lot then? Yeah, I've seen the trailer for it about seven or eight times, I think. Because I admit, if you haven't seen a trailer, there's very little to recommend it. Like, what's it about? It doesn't make sense. I didn't know what it was about, and I still, even from the trailer, didn't quite pick up on what this film was. Well, then this is the second thing as well, but now having just seen it, and we're about to play it later, it sounds a little bit like Highlander. Did you ever watch that? No. Highlander was about these eternal beings who are constantly fighting duels together, and if one Highlander defeats another one then that's the only way that one of them can die. And so eventually there's just one left. A sort of sci-fi-ish film, but set through the ages, that kind of thing. Similar at all? Uh, Echoes of that probably is appropriate to The Dark Tower. I didn't know what it was. All I knew was that lots of people are massive fans of the book series that this is based on. And this is written by Stephen King. He's behind loads of different films. He's probably one of the most famous writers there is. Yeah, big time. Wrote The Shining, wrote It, wrote Shawshank Redemption, loads of different things. 
massive, massive writer, massive movie writer as well. He's behind lots of movies that have done very, very well. So he knows how to put together ideas that really connect and... Um, quite evocative, powerful. Yeah, yeah, and lots of people have been talking about the opening line of the, the Dark Tower novel. It's something like, the man in black flees across the desert and the gunsinger follows. That's okay. the opening line. And lots of people say, oh, it's a great opening line because it gives you the whole context of what this film's, what the kind of main thrust of this story is. I suppose so. Uh, right now, it sounds a bit like Michael Crichton's version of Westworld. <laughs> so I need more. Yeah. So this is the story of really a little boy or a teenage boy called Jake, who's been having visions of another world. He seems to be tormented by these visions. And there's a lot of dark imagery in his dreams. And he draws out these different sketches and on his little notebook. And he's sort of getting this picture of this tower, this dark tower that has some significance. And he can't seem to escape it. This is causing his parents a lot of distress because they think this kid's weird. like Disturbed. Right. <laughs> yeah, let's sort him out. Um, but he keeps on having these visions. And eventually he starts to realize that actually there is these, these, these aren't just dreams. These are a real world. And this real world is inhabited by Matthew McConaughey playing a man in black right who's given the name Walter so that he doesn't conflict with uh, the Westworld TV show which had a character oh, called the man in black so I was right then okay right yeah because even the gunslinger like that's a character from Westworld I think yeah and so and then the gunslinger is who's his sort of mortal enemy is played by Idris Elba yeah and he's pl- he's called Roland <laughs> of course right got it. no comment on the name Roland <laughs> I quite like the name Roland it's an ancient name for it goes back to the knights uh, of the round table did you know that well there you go <laughs> This this film and this story is in fact more of a sci-fi tale than you'd ever imagine. It's got technology in it. It's got kind of alien creatures, a mysterious backstory. It's a strange melding of fantasy and science fiction so that you've got this old Western style world where there's sort of guns, gunslingers and yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of shanty towns and lawlessness mixed with this alien race or creepiness and technology mixed with religious ideas of demons and horrifyingness so that all kind of coalesces into this film we're going to play the trailer which i think actually sums up quite a lot of what's going on uh, but hopefully this what i've just said will make more sense to that trailer for thousands of generations the gunslingers were knights sworn to protect us from the coming of the dark These visions, as you call them. What do you see? I see a tower. The man in black. And the gunslinger. They're just dreams. They're not real, Jake. There's another world out there. I know there is. You. You're a gunslinger, right? There are no gunslingers. Not anymore. Why does the man in black want to destroy the tower? The tower protects both our worlds. If it falls, hell will be unleashed. He's like the devil, isn't he? No, he's worse. You can't stop what's coming. Death always wins. Your world might be gone, but mine isn't. You let that tower fall, billions of people die. Do they have guns and bullets in your world? You're gonna like Earth. 
a lot. All right, let's go. You clawing your way out of the darkness? Did you tell the kid whoever walks with you dies by my hand? I will kill him for both of us. I do not aim at my hand. His hand has forgotten the face of his father. I aim with my eye. I do not shoot with my hand. I shoot with my mind. Jake! I do not kill with my gun. I kill with my heart. So hang on a minute. He shoots guns with his mind. <laughs> and he kills people with his heart? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Super cheesy, no? Just a bit. What? Here's the question I have for you. Right. Having heard that trailer, having spoken about this sort of epic scale, this is based on a series of eight novels or something, how long do you reckon this sort of film would be? Mm, I mean, that sounds like you're leading me question. into a trap there, Phil. I mean, I, I'll, play, I'll play ball. I'm thinking two and a half hours. Yeah, it's 95 minutes long. You see, I think I know this because the one tidbit that I've picked up about it in the general press is that this is attempting to set up a franchise. Yes, and it certainly feels like that. It feels very much like a TV pilot, quite an expensive TV pilot. Yeah. <laughs> a very expensive TV pilot. The characters are kind of established vaguely, but then the film just seems to wrap up and then what seems like a sort of initial episode, a mini episode within the arc of the story you know, like a section of the story and you'd have a couple of sections yeah, before yeah. the finale. That section actually turns out to be the finale and it sort of, it ends before it even really begins and it seems a bit empty and a bit sh- sort of thin. You see, yeah, and I don't think audiences like that, film. No, they don't, especially when you've got an epic series and especially when your fan base who loves it, <laughs> eight books is a long time to invest into a series <laughs> and then you get a 95-minute thing that's then just going to be continued by a tv series is that what it is so they, it's not, they've it's talked not about doing more films i think they talked about doing a sequel to the film and also a tv series so they don't know what they're going to do this this franchise this film rights there's a massive long history it was originally with jj abrams in the, sort of the middle 2000s then when he realized he couldn't really do anything with the property it then went to ron howard to do something with and right. he didn't really know what to do and then finally it's ended up with this guy nikolai arcel i think it is or something yeah like yeah that. that's what i've got yeah it's a bit of a strange pronunciation he was the guy behind the writing he wrote the first film adaption the swedish film adaption that's right he of the girl the, the drag novel. Tattoo. that's right yeah. yeah he got the rights and now he's directing this film and also he's written the script for this film as well the film is a complete mess it really is it's, it's a very uncomfortable uh boring silly and bizarre mix of loads of different things and you think it's basically been handled incompetently and you kind of have to point it at the director no really well i mean he's done he's directed a few other films but probably none quite as big league as this not not big blockbuster thing i think he might have had an international oscar nomination or something for one of his films allegedly there was a six million pound reshoot of the film after they realised that all the audiences hated Roland. Oh, no. They thought he, his character wasn't established enough, so they did more reshoots. Uh, I still didn't care who he was. 
at all. They didn't care about Idris Elba. But come on, man, it's Idris Elba. Yeah, but he's just Idris Elba. You don't ever get past the fact that he's Idris Elba. Oh, and actually, Idris Elba is good in this film. He's quite likable as an American Idris Elba. His voice is good. He's got a conviction. He's got kind of that cool look to him. I think when he's an act- when he's just acting, acting, I re- I quite like the guy. I, yeah, I, I've never I've never not liked him in a live action role. I don't like his voice work. Yeah, especially his normal voice. I think his American voice, his American accent is very strong. Certainly I was introduced to him as Stringer Bell in The Wire, in which he's amazing. So I hear, yeah. He's probably the best part of the movie. The kid, I was surprised that there was a little kid in the story. I didn't think it was that sort of type of tale. It reminded me a bit of the never-ending story. Oh, no. And that sort of idea. never-ending story. (laughs) With the big dog thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tray you, whatever. (laughs) No, Falcor. Falcor, that was it. Anyway... I, it was a bizarre mix of a serious... It was like a teenage version of a never-ending story, this fantasy world which kind of you get sucked into with a, an evil being. Matthew McConaughey, incidentally, is terrible. He's not well cast. Oh, and that's such a shame. I think he isn't intimidating or cool enough. The idea of a man in black as a as an idea... Is he sort of a demonic figure? Sort of. Has Matthew McConaughey done that before? I don't know. He's he's he's. I kind of found it hard to follow the film. In all honesty, it's a very short film. It doesn't really establish the world that much. You get the sense that there's this dark tower holding up everything, and they're going to shoot like a laser beam from kids' minds into it or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's really weird. And so you've got a bizarre world, a poorly established world. Badly written in the sense that character motivations aren't there. There's not enough characterization to the characters. Um, it doesn't really make sense. It's not very long. The action sequences, which hopefully you think might redeem it a little bit, are literally Idris Elba using two little re- revolvers going pew, 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 pew. And that gets very dull very quickly. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan, John Woo managed to make that quite good, the whole dual-wielding pistols. What, and he in, used, what are you thinking of? Well, he did all the he did face off and oh, he's an action sure. yeah, action yeah. legend, right, and okay. he loves the he loves the uh, double guns and he makes everyone jump around all the place and use slow mo okay. and fire in the air. So they try and do that, but they don't really do it very well, and it just gets a bit dull. Guns firing into people. It's not like a sword where you can twirl it and make it look exciting. So really, the stakes need to be there for it to be exciting when he's shooting. So you need at people. to be in, you need to be invested in every one of those boring bullets. That's what you're saying. Yeah, you need to really care whether or not he's going to hit his target. And then with lines like, I do not shoot with my eye, I shoot with my heart or whatever. Like, it just becomes silly and cheesy and just sci-fi schlock, really, rather than this epic series which could span a franchise. What a disappointment. Because I'm I'm all in, Phil, for a really good new sci-fi sort of spectacular series. Right, exactly. Series. Especially the sci-fi western. Yeah. And from watching the film, it seems like there's way more stuff going on with the series that they haven't really crammed in. This ends up being kind of a sequel to the eight films that have already gone before. It seems like there's something bit more to the relationship between uh, the man in black and Roland, the gunslinger. There's a bit right. more of a kind of epic Highlander-esque you, dyna- yeah, dynamic. Yeah, sure, okay. But the film doesn't really ever establish that. It just sort of hints at it, but it doesn't make sense. For well, some reason, the man in black's magic doesn't work on Roland. Who knows why? They don't mm, tell you. Well, it's, if they think they've got a whole load of other films to make that clear and a TV series, that's probably why. But like I say, I think they've just miscalculated there with what audiences want. It's so a difficult you... thing, isn't it? You've got to make sure your first audition, you wow the judges. The pilot, right? Or That's else you're not going to be able to do your big finale. Well, they said, we, we talked about Game of Thrones a while ago. Apparently the original pilot was terrible, so they redid the whole thing because it was just such a mess. Did you hear about that? I did hear about that, It's, yeah. it's worth looking into. So do you think this is the end then? We're not going to see the TV series? We're not going to see the other films? I think we could see a TV series. I think people um, know that there's enough product 
and enough of a fan base for it to be successful. Okay. It just hasn't worked out this time. It wouldn't surprise me if somebody takes the rights and just throws that in the bin and then just does a really good TV series with it. Because if there is this whole world building and and, and a long series to get your teeth into, Game of Thrones is coming to an end. I'm sure there's well, a, a you know, big appeal. I was just going to say, there's a massive hole right there. But then maybe this is maybe Westworld is too similar, so it's just mm. not the right time. Uh, what's the grade? I'm going to give it a C. I think it's... Oh, actually, C-. minus. I think it's a really poorly made film. I think hey. all of the blame has to go to the director, I'm afraid, and the writer. You, mm. you, can't, you can't get away with that. You, if you're adapting Stephen King, you don't really have a leg to stand on not producing something of a somewhat decent quality. He must have given a very passionate pitch or something, man. I don't know. I think it was more that it was in developmental hell and he was the only guy who managed to actually produce something through all of it. Well, there we go. Sad one. Uh, any bonuses or done? Um, there's an interesting sequence where the boy in the earth, rather than this fantasy world that he goes into, some some people chase after him. And one of the people that chases after him, they've got like this weird like neck scar because they're like wearing skin or something like that. You know, one of those Ooh, okay. yeah, classic yeah, yeah. sci-fi I'm, tropes. I'm with you, I'm with you. Anyway, the guy, there's a there's a chase across a rooftop, but the guy who's chasing him is not an athletic guy. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, it's just a tubby guy chasing a kid. And so it's like, that's, I mean, it makes sense in the story, but it doesn't really scream tension in <laughs> the it, same way. Is it a slow chase? Well, not a slow chase, but it's just, it just doesn't, he's got like curly hair. He's just a portly sort of chap. It just doesn't work. And it's just, it no, no. Oh dear. I don't want to sing it, man. Is that is that bad? That's fine. This is what we've been watching this week. Yeah, listeners, older films reviewed for you. And we may or may not have to do quite a lot of these next week, eh, Phil? But that's something to talk about later. Exciting. Yes, I've seen Roadhouse starring Patrick Swayze. And what have you seen? I have seen Colossal, Anne Hathaway, Jason Sudeikis. Right, who's going first? You. All right, Roadhouse. Can I buy you guys a drink? Guess not. Patrick Swayze is... Dalton. I thought you'd be... bigger. Opinions vary. When he's around, anything can happen. How's a guy like you end up a bouncer? Just lucky, I guess. And usually does. If somebody gets in your face, I want you to be nice. Don't! Don't be rude! Ask him to walk, but be nice. Help this gentleman to the door. Until it's time to not be nice. So says the fighting philosopher. He may be hard to handle. I keep talking, you're going to go off thinking I'm a nice guy. I know you're not a nice guy. But he's easy to like. What's the matter, Dalton? Don't you like women? The worst I ever had was wonderful. He's not what you'd expect. I thought you'd be bigger. (laughs) But there's one thing you can count on. He's the best friend a good time ever had. Aren't you guys tired? Doc, I'll get all the sleep I need when I'm dead. This is my time. I'm not afraid of him. I guess you'll be having that fire sale now, all right? <laughs> you got your hands full, kid. I just think I'm looking at a dead man. <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Did that line of work? I thought you'd be bigger. Gee, I've never heard that before. Roadhouse. 
Phil, uh, you know, uh, once we did a sort of logline thing for films, and you know what a logline is, right? Yeah, it's like a summary statement for the and film. The whole point is the shorter sentence you can get your logline into that encapsulates the whole film, probably the better it's going to be because the concept is so clear. Check, check this one out on IMDb. A tough bouncer is hired to tame a dirty bar, full stop. Tame a dirty bar? Yeah, I think that might be one of the best loglines I've ever read because it doesn't <laughs> get much clearer than that. And there's your whole film. He's <laughs> just going to try and sort a bar out. So Roadhouse stars Patrick Swayze as Dalton. For some reason, some kind of weird celebrity bouncer guy that everyone seems to know about. He goes into bars that are really tough. You know, the late 80s had those sort of rock raves. If you think even Wayne's World. The biker bars or whatever. Yeah, do you remember what was the place they go to in Wayne's World? Where the gas house. The, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, and then well, everyone's the gas works. Kind of mo- gas works. Uh, everyone's moshing. It's kind of a bit tough. There are fights that go on. Bottles get smashed. And if you've got a bouncer who can sort of settle the whole thing down, make it vaguely respectable, then he's kind of, you know, known. And everyone talks about him in this kind of awe. And even the opening scene, a guy like slashes a knife at him and he just kind of turns around slowly with his perfectly quiffed mullety hairdo and just looks at the guy and takes him outside and then doesn't even fight him because he's won the day. He's just taken him outside. So it's all about how this bouncer is totally restrained, right? And he's got the he's got skills that you don't even see. And it's more about the rumour and about the mystery. So when another businessman turns up and offers him five hundred dollars a night, uh, plus 5000 up front to help him tame a dirty bar slash one that's really, really out of control. Dalton, you know, accepts. He goes to look it over and says, I'll take on the challenge. And it's all about him putting together a bouncer team, cleaning up the bar, and what? then coming into conflict with the sort of businessman who wants it to be a bit dirty so that he can make a profit off it, right? So he thinks, Dalton, you're cleaning up my town, and I don't like that. Then uh, quickly, just before you say anything else, you hear that? Here's a guy who's come to clean something up and the businessman doesn't like it. What genre does that make you think of? Like kids movie. No, not a kids movie. Come on, you can do this, man. Come on, someone goes somewhere to clean it up, but people don't want him to clean it up and they sort of roughhouse him. Come on, you can do this. <laughs> I thought it was really obvious. A Western, man. That is a Western. Oh, right, Western's yeah. a classic. There's a gunslinger that, you know, the local uh, uh, church uh, leader... He's having a rough time. ...comes over and says, please come and help our village. It's like Seven Samurai or something. Oh, right, and right. they all turn up and they, and they clear out the bandits, but the bandits hate them and they stage a revolt. That is this film. And it's really weird. I've never noticed that before, how many uh, other genres the Western is kind of present in because Patrick Swayze is basically the gunslinger. You don't see him, you know, whip out his, his pistols guns, yeah. until until the right moment and in this case it's not so much pistols as really embarrassing uh, balletic <laughs> kicks and things oh no it's like they thought they'd hired um what's his name jean-claude van damme but instead they'd hired patrick swayze <laughs> uh, he does a lot of gurning into the camera and, and yeah the fights are not good but there's a lot of them and this is sort of heralded as one of these so bad it's good films a real camp 80s classic because it's full of like really terrible over the top fight sequences with stuff getting smashed up it's got rock music from Jeff Healy who's a Canadian rock star who's actually in the film as a character and it's got babes in it Phil are you getting the picture basically yeah totally and it's got Swayze and not just Swayze this must be the film that that scene in Hot Rod is inspired on it was Patrick Swayze oils up in front of a lake and does Tai Chi and stuff no well really? yeah this is the one where, where when his old sort of landlord who's letting him stay at his river house just watches <laughs> this old dude just watches him <laughs> like greasily float around it's <laughs> unbelievable and you know like don't homoeroticism man it's an interesting concept but I've never seen a more homoeroticism it film than this there's one particular moment where 
uh, you know, stuff gets really tough for Dalton, right? Because these this businessman is sending thugs to him. He's really intimidating him and his friends, blowing up diners, that kind of thing. It's really... really it's, <laughs> no, that's what they in the trailer there. It's a guy who said, oh, now you can have that fire sale. That's after having blown up this thing. And it's so over the top. But uh, with all that going on, he calls in his mentor, another, another classic sort of movie trope, who's like the best bouncer. And he learned everything he learned from him, but he's a bit older. He's it's like called a karate movie. But he, like... Yeah, exactly. Karate Kid's in there as well. And he's played by uh, Sam Elliott, who's quite well Oh, yeah, the Tash guy, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But he's like a tough bouncer in this. He's slightly older. And they have such a weird kind of bromance. There's one scene in particular where they talk to each other where I couldn't believe they didn't kiss at the end of it <laughs> because of the way it was shot and the dialogue. It was like, why have they not kissed? That, that, literally, that is You're what... You're saying it up as if it was a <laughs> It was unbelievable. A romantic moment. Yeah, it was... So it's got every kind of cliche you can imagine. And, you know, I can't remember them off the top of my head. I wish I'd have written them down. But every other line is one of these lines you can't believe it quite got written. I was born ready. That's that kind of thing. It's, it's unbelievable. So it does feel that kind of so bad it's almost good film, but it's not good. I think the the major crime the film has is it's way too long. It's it so involved. <laughs> like, how can you get so involved about this stupid plot? There are moments that are entertaining, but they're really dragged down by how long it goes on for. Like there's scenes that just serve no purpose. You know it's going to end up in a sort of Rambo confrontation at the end mm-hmm. with guns blazing and, and ridiculous like murders that you can never actually get away with, that kind of thing going mm-hmm. on. And odd sort of comedy moments that are not actually funny. You know where it's going, so it didn't need to take that long to get there. Um, but I think it's almost worth a watch to see where a lot of current movie cliches have originated from. I'm not going to claim necessarily that this is exactly the origin of it. But, but it's certainly the contributor I mean, he's, to it. He, also, he rips throats out as well, which no. we've seen sort of parodied multiple no. times. Yeah, really? Yeah, that's In a bouncer movie. There's this amazing moment where he's intimidating this guy and he's obviously fighting his inner demons because he holds his hands up like in throat grab. Take it out. And then, and then he, he goes in and goes, no. <laughs> and, go, and he's sort of like fighting within himself not to rip the throat out. <laughs> it's just terrible. Um, is it yeah. the sort of movie which you've watched with a group of friends and laugh at? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so... Like, like I say, it's so long, though. You need to be enjoying a beer at the same time. Otherwise, it'll just get a bit too Drag tedious. on. Um, but, you know, I think some people say it's become a kind of cult classic. I don't know that I'd go that far. Reportedly, Bill Murray thinks it's an underappreciated gem, which doesn't make sense to me. But I think the most interesting tidbit I picked up on my Wikipedia hunt was that apparently the NYPD used scenes from it to train their officers in and, what way? Well, the only one I can think of, and it was actually a surprisingly compelling scene. I think it's the best scene in the film and actually quite powerful. It's when Dalton has got his bouncer team. He gives them a speech about what he does. And at this point, you've not seen him really do anything. You just know his reputation. And he spends his whole time saying, be nice. It was in that trailer over and over again. He said, be nice until it's time to not be nice, which is one of those lines. But it's, it's a surprisingly powerful <laughs> scene. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the scene the NYPD used. Pay attention. Because it makes a lot of sense uh, about who you are. You're a professional. You know, when someone swears at you and calls you a beep beep, those are just two nouns brought together to produce an effect. That's what Patrick Swayze says. Does he actually say? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really interesting scene. I think it's weirdly accidentally (laughs) well written. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The strange motivational like teaching. I think you'd, you'd enjoy it. But yeah, anyway, listeners, it's one to enjoy. Check out the way that it uses the Wild West, uh, but completely transplants it into these 1980s clubs. Maybe it is worth a watch. And, and you can find it on all kinds of streaming places. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably give it a B. Is yeah. it violent? 
it's violent, but in an 80s way. Like I said, and in my outrage for the Lighthouse, Limehouse Golem that you think I've uh, overdone their film. I think you might need to turn it <laughs> out a little ed- bit. Edit out, edit out some of the outrage. This is supposed to be an 18, um, but it's, you know, compared to 18s today, compared to 15s today, for goodness sake, it's as tame as it gets. <laughs> okay, there you go. Roadhouse. There you go. All right, Phil, you are going to do... Colossal. I just looked at the news and I think I'm in shock. A giant monster just materialized over Seoul. That happened like nine hours ago. You were just hearing about this. What have you been doing all day? You ever notice how it just keeps destroying everything in its path, but it never looks down? It's like it's being operated by remote control. Yeah, you got to see this. It's dancing. It's dancing like. Laurie and I have been discussing this a lot while we were sorting out the clip and everything like that that you probably have just heard. You may have heard some things about the plot. You may not have. Yes. I'm inclined to slightly spoil this movie with a key detail. Well, and Laurie's very to, keen yeah. not to. I just think it's really clear. And if you've heard my review for it, listeners, I went out of my way not to spoil it. That was a long time ago now. Because when I watched it, I didn't know some of the key stuff about the film and that made a big difference to how I felt when I watched it so I think if you are at all intrigued by the film I would I would try and avoid any spoilers but I'm accepting Phil that given I've already reviewed it we sort of need the spoilers here mm. so I am going to spoil the film for those of you this it is your last in the trailer a little bit as it well. is in the trailer as well so if you are not interested at all in hearing anything more go back and listen to Laurie's review he does a very good job of reviewing it oh, and intriguing Phil. And that's why I wanted to see the film <laughs> because of Laurie. Uh, but he—that's that's way of finding out about the film without having to spoil it or anything like that. Right, I'm now going to yes. say. So right, here go, is go go. Here is the big thing with this film. Anne Hathaway is this sort of drunk loser who has her life fall apart. She's constantly partying, and so her boyfriend says she needs to leave, and so she goes back to her hometown and meets some of her old buddies from her hometown. Jason Sudeikis, bar owner. Yes, and. They get together and they start sort of putting her life together a little bit. Uh, Meanwhile, in Korea, a massive monster appears uh, at the same time every single day, it seems to be, or at night or Or whatever. Or specific times, yeah. At very specific times, a monster appears and has been trashing the centre of sort of Korea and... Seoul in North Korea. In Seoul, yeah, Uh, thank you. South Korea, yeah, yeah. In South Korea. And then it disappears and nothing, nothing the military seemed to be able to do seemed to be able to affect it. It just seems to cause destruction and it seems to have no reason for it at all. It just seems aimless destruction. And the, the reveal that the trailer gives is the fact that actually there's a link between Anne Hathaway, her character, and this monster. In fact, what Anne Hathaway does during certain times of the day in a specific area of um Well, on hometown, this playground, which is implied it has similar geography to Seoul in Korea, yeah. So when she's on this little sand pity area, she is in fact this monster and anything she does will happen in Korea. But in big scale in a terrifying way, yes. Around this whole thing is this issue of alcoholism, I guess. Yeah, sure. And she she seems to really struggle with drink and it seems to be a crutch that she goes to. Um, and even though her boyfriend's kicked her out, She's drinking lots. Well, she's and lots working of, in a bar, which is a terrible decision. And lots of her buddies seem to be big drinkers as well. 
Laurie painted this picture of this film, which was really <laughs> intriguing, and it was crowdfunded, as in it wasn't funded by studios, but this was a... And not crowdfunded, but it was uh, funded by a sort of collective. So a it's group not, of it was people. Not, it's not Kickstarter. <laughs> no, no, but it's not Kickstarter. It is a studio, but people pay to invest in it. So you become a shareholder. It's publicly funded, but not in a Kickstarter way. But it's, it's an unusual funding. So yeah, it's, it's funded it's unusual, by people. And it's films that apparently the public want to see. They invest in it. Yes. Yes. And so Laurie was intrigued by that. And then Laurie didn't see that whole thing with Anne Hathaway being a monster and thought it was very bizarre. He kind of went into it blind. Yeah. I knew that she was the monster because we talked about it after the show finished and everything like that. I was intrigued in the film. I think Anne Hathaway is bizarre and unlike any other role I've seen her in. She's very convincing. She's great, isn't she? She's I, good. I thought Jason Sudeikis was good in the first half of the film. Um, and then things get really weird. And you think <laughs> the whole her being a monster, you kind of think, oh, that's strange. And instead, she doesn't know that. She has to find that out herself. She figures that out over yeah. the course of the movie. That's strange. And you think, okay, that's really weird. I wonder why that's happening. And you kind of go with it. But then as it continues, you think, what on earth is going on? And then you get like little flashbacks to childhood Anne Hathaway yep. and toys. And, and it just suddenly goes bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> bananas. This... <laughs> <laughs> and I lost it at that point. I was like, what? what is this? And I felt a little bit cheated because I thought... That's right near the end, though. It I mean, is right yeah. near the end. But the whole film is building up to this sort of explanation. And it makes a certain... There's a certain point in which... The idea of it being a metaphor is removed from your options of understanding the film. And my personal opinion is that the whole thing is meant to be metaphor <laughs> and meant to be illustrative of what's going on in Anne Hathaway's life. I hope you agree, Laurie. Well, I mean, this is exactly what I said in my review, which is that as you go through the film, it continually surprises you. And like, what am I actually watching here? Is this a film about alcoholism or is it about something completely different? Because just as you think, oh, I've got a grasp on the metaphor. I understand that that's relating to that. And oh, so in other words, because there's all this destruction around people she hardly knows, that's just like the damage alcohol does. It destroys you, but also it affects other people. Sure, if you magnify it, it's like destroying a city that you're not even aware of destroying, right? That's a nice and simple idea about alcoholism. But then it isn't anything to do with that quite quickly when it when Jason Sudeikis goes nuts. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, basically, Jason Sudeikis. It's about abusiveness. He and, goes and, in and like, he becomes this giant robot man. And then it just it just goes bananas like there's there's no way to that's i don't what, that's what i liked about it man and i didn't i didn't know what to do with that well, check it out so uh, the key thing the key sort of key 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 that key, i key, thought key. unlocked that the key to the key problem that you, you, you lo- unlock the little key <laughs> to open the big key yeah. to open the door the very last shot do you remember it uh i don't so she after having succeeded in defeating jason sudeikis in a slightly weird way it has to be said she sort of flings him into the horizon dead i would have thought um then she goes into a bar and there's a south korean or not a bar sorry a shop like an off license or whatever it is and the lady says oh goodness thank goodness it's over would you like one of these and she offers her a drink she offers her a beer and anne hathaway looks at the camera and like goes oh not this like as in it's not over and that i think that unlocks the whole thing it's it's actually it's a much broader thing it's all to do with life and it the reason it doesn't center around alcoholism is that it it's braver than that i think it expands beyond that more ambitious yeah 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 so it's not just 
alcohol is your problem and your excuse. It's, it's actually it's life environment and, and it's people and it's history and it's everything goes into shaping these sort of terrible characteristics. So that I loved it that here she not is. Not just that she can't handle a drink. It's exactly. her whole life is it, in tatters. Exa- exactly. So she's defeated this guy who's, you know, terrible and sort of holding her hostage almost, isn't it? It's a frightening performance from Jason Segel. Yeah, Sears, very creepy, very horrible. Really intimidating and horrible. He's totally unhinged. And I think the comedian's side of him really helps that because he seems totally out of it. Then when the fact that the drink problem raises its head immediately after you think in a filmic sense the victory's been won and the day is over and she's survived her problems but then it's like oh no they're gonna give me a drink and i'm gonna cause problems again does that make sense nothing's yeah, been actually I didn't, resolved i didn't pick up on that maybe i wasn't watching closely that's I, that's the ma- that is the major thing that i made sort me of it, yeah. in all honesty that i started switching off because i thought I can't get my I can't get my head around this. I can't I can't and maybe this is me being a bit childish almost saying I don't get it so it's stupid and that's not right and I maybe I need to work a bit harder. I'm in not general. saying that I've got it either, but exactly. I do think the film is too interested in being quirky. That I think the idea of the story and the idea of the concept sounds uh, like an oxymoron, but it overrides the story as it's being told. The high concept nature of it takes over so they want to convey that idea like oh what if this and then actually the the story that the metaphor is serving gets lost i think and you get distracted so it takes your eyes off the actual focus which is anne hathaway's journey her story everything like that um but it does make you work it is it it was intriguing me but then i just i just started almost saying I, so it I lost you because it was too sort of trying too hard or something yeah and trying to be too different too quirky and then giving you no reference point because I've never seen a story like that. It's completely bonkers, isn't it's it? It's completely yeah. bonkers. And so maybe you'll love it, maybe you won't. Listeners, I'd be interested to know if you haven't seen Colossal or you didn't see it in cinemas, do try and track it down. It probably is on streaming somewhere, Amazon or Netflix or some other service. Um, it'd be an interesting one to watch. It's shot quite nicely, acted quite well. It's shot beautifully. Do you know what I think? And the, the approach to shooting changes based on kind of how it's working. Like there was a really nice dolly shots of uh, the rooms in profile of her mm. walking through the house and I, I thought and that only happened at certain points whereas some of it was shot very intimately like it's an alcohol re- recovery drama or something I, I thought it was very clever sort of directorial changes and stuff there you go so do have a look and check it out and send us in your thoughts superbabybros at gmail.com do send that in for Roadhouse as well yep. at superbabybros on Twitter Give us your plus ones, give us your minus ones. We'd love to hear from you guys if you've seen either of those movies. Also, don't forget... Oh, let me give a quick grade to Colossal. I'm going to give it a B minus, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I gave it an A minus. Do suggest, if you've got films that you'd like Laurie and I to watch, we'd love to maybe try and do a bit more with what we've been watching well certainly next week we will because looking at the schedule and based on what we said in the intro i don't think we're gonna there are any really new releases that we'll be able to watch before next thursday so we're thinking of doing like a bumper what we've been watching and just let that take over next week's show yeah make it a bit more fun so if there's a movie you think yes i want to watch that you'd want to hear what laura and i thought of that suggest it one of us will try and watch it that'd be great um, if we get like billions and billions, we probably won't be able to. Instant, I've already got one film queued up, which is Shooter, starring Mark Wahlberg. Oh. Mm. Also, I need to see Tallulah. I think a listener sent, suggested that. That was a Netflix film with uh, Ellen Page. And oh, yeah, yeah. I need yeah. to watch that one. Come on, and it's then gonna be great, man. It's another great. listener suggested 310 to Yuma or something, or am I confusing it? What's that Christian Bale one with uh, like a Western? Uh, that is 310 to Yuma, I think, yeah. Or am I confusing with another one? No, what's the Tim Roth one? 
Oh, that's uh, The Legend of 1800. The yeah. Legend of 1800. Maybe we need to see these films. Come on, man. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's try and get this up. It's going to be a great show next week. But yes, in short, if you want us to review old films, send them our way and we'll do our very best. And I want to reassure listeners after your colossal thing there that although it's bonkers, there is still a strong narrative, isn't there? So you're yeah, not, not going to lose your place. It's not that you're, it, it doesn't leave you... It's a, it's a very clear story, but the messaging behind it is a big muddle. And what it means and what the implications are are very difficult to d- disentangle. Yeah. So it's very kind of in your face, this is what is happening, but what does that happening mean? If that oh, makes oh, this, I'm getting lost. I love it, man. I love it's it. So I love it so explain. much. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, Phil. That's what we've been watching this week. Email song, Phil. Emails. 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 That doesn't make any sense. Are you going for a Frank Sinatra kind of it was, uh, vibe? I just said emails weird and then said it again weird and then tried it again weird. Different, different How many ways. different ways can you say emails? Uh, I don't really want to play this game. <laughs> can we do it later? Maybe we'll do that up bonus. Emails. <laughs> All right, okay. Here we go. Not so many emails this week. We got some feedback already, Phil, on our Dunkirk special last Oh, goody, goody, goody. Week, um, from Esther. And she says... Uh, first off, she says, at Super Belly Bros, Laurie, such a cynic. That's capitals, in case you couldn't oh, tell. Oh. Did not notice the change in film type in IMAX at all and really like the guy's intro, hashtag Dunkirk. So that's me saying that you could see it swap from full screen to letterbox and back again. Yeah, tell, I noticed, noticed it, right? it a little bit, but then I didn't notice it enough to think I thought I was misunderstanding something rather than the film yeah, and being so wrong, I, if that makes so sense. I hope what I didn't say was that that really brought me out of the film in a terrible way. I did notice it, and but I noticed it more as a technique. I thought, oh, right. So they, I do agree with you, yeah. your little spiel of the get, having a go at the guy explaining what IMAX is. That's, yeah. just, you, that's just get off your high horse. It's just <laughs> Or the, me, personally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you get off it. But no, I was just sort of, I was enjoying the little jokey uh, back and forth we had, but maybe I overplayed my hand. Uh, she also says, you guys might want to think about starting with the positives and then diving into everything you hate? Question mark? <laughs> Exclamation mark. Oh dear. We've, I think Dunkirk was a hard one to deal with because it's almost like you have the wave of different people's opinions and you get a sense that everyone's raving about aspects of the film and I don't know. I think the fact that everyone else has already been saying positive things, and I didn't really even know what those positive things were. I assume there was a lot of positive things about the music, about the visuals, about the special effects, about the before, like all those sort of things. And so, therefore, you kind of so might not already in the IMDb top twenty films ever. Probably or is. Ridiculous. But my experience, I don't know if you find this doing reviews after everyone's already given their opinions, you kind of tentatively feel like you need to point out the things your issues with the film. Because you kind of see it as a given that there's all these positives. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I uh, maybe we do need to be more... Po- the thing, Esther, I'm sorry that it did seem like that. I thought that we basically were kind of right through the middle. I thought we threw in negatives and positives and equal amount right from the get-go. But maybe as we opposed just to did loads and loads of negatives and then positives. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Phil's right. We were so in the zone there that all we thought were, well, here's what we observed, here are the things, blah, 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 blah. But hopefully it wasn't too much for Downer because we both overall liked it, I think, right? Yeah, and I think there was some things which are really worth admiring in the film the scale the ambition of the project i think chris Nolan is a unique filmmaker and i'm glad he gets to do these sort of weird bizarre unique films 
But I don't love everything about what he no. does. That's all I think I wanted to say. But thank you very much for coming back at us. And we got an email here as well from Cal on the IMAX experience. You ready for this, Bill? Yeah. And he says, hey, chaps, enjoyed listening to your Dunkirk review cast. A plus one to you both for your thoughts. Oh, brilliant. Which I largely agreed with. And yeah. I think that's the thing as well. Is that We were quite surprised, weren't we, when we read the emails? You're not, no one was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, everyone had same similar sort of reservations to us. I think it's one of those films where there's, there's something which probably didn't work for everyone, but they, what, what didn't work varied. I think that was the thing which I was getting a sense of, is that some people didn't like the, the realism or the intensity of the film. Other people felt like it was a bit too confusing with the chronology and the timings. Other people felt like it didn't quite deal with the history. So it's a divisive film, but not, it's not a bad film. And so in some ways it's quite hard to sort of... Shift through the muck. Okay, you're not, oh, gonna, not the muck. Shift through the mess. Yeah. yeah, you're not going to agree on what was problematic about the film. It just, there's different things that work for different people. Yeah, nice. He carries on. Agree with the music being a bit flat. It didn't stir me quite as much as The Dark Knight. Well, that's interesting to hear because I just assumed that either you're on board with the sort of overall style and so you like all those scores or you're like me and you don't like any of them. But no, I think that you can more, like the Batman thing and not this. I, yeah, I feel like that. I like his scores for Inception and I like his score. Do you Batman again? I could hear it in my head and it, in its distinctive theme when you hear it in the film I think you think oh that is Batman's yeah, theme yeah 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 let's not, have this, that, let's not yeah. rehash this one no, okay, uh, just, I was you just asked making, me to do it I was just, I was just making a point oh, with some so colourful. annoying uh, just a small note he carries on about the BFI IMAX it is my favourite cinema in the UK followed closely by the electric cinema chain the announcement by the BFI staff member is something that happens before every film when you go to that cinema I've been to see enough films over the past few years there that I feel I can say this with some degree of accuracy I've come to love the different presentation styles of various staff members who have to do it and i feel it only adds to the experience now if only they could refer back to the classic cinema style of tickets instead of the naff receipt style tickets the movie going experience would be complete so well, like an actual yeah little formal stub, stub thing with the we know punched holes in it makes it a bit more like a, an experience i think you've got to give credit to the imax it makes it feel like a more momentous occasion. Well, and that presentation certainly adds to that. And yeah, that is a very fair point, Cal. I've only ever been there the once, now it's for Dunkirk. And what I loved, actually, about watching Dunkirk was the fact that I was in a screen which was full of people, which doesn't happen that often. Yeah, same as me, that's true, Phil. And that's really nice. And it means that when you experience the film, all the moments, the gasps, the, the jolting, the jumping, all of that is kind of crescendoed by everyone else's reactions. It amplifies the experience because you're sharing it with other people. Yeah. I mean, the major thing, Esther and Cal, I guess, that I felt, and I was being a bit over the top, it was supposed to be fun, I apologise if it wasn't, <laughs> is it just feels a little bit like cheating to me. And you know this already, Phil. I don't like cheating in films. I didn't like... <laughs> what have you ever said you don't so, like cheating? For example, Ghostbusters. People won't say that film as much for the ridiculous press around it as anything else. So you came in with so many... Pre, expectations yeah pre-judgments about things so, and, and expectations that it was impossible to see it just as a film it's like terms. picking a team rather than yeah exactly and dunkirk and just the bfi and that approach yes it's an experience and everything else but you have to admit that when someone sits there or stands there at the front and their little lectern and tells you how unique and special this is and how much money got poured into it and how and all this kind of technical stuff about the film immediately before you watch it it sets expectations it yeah and it, it just changes the way that you access the film and it convinces you that what you're seeing is a bigger deal it has than more inherent any worth. other film yeah and if uh, the imax showed every film in that way i mean what are they going to say about the hitman's bodyguard i mean I 
I did enjoy having to watch to the Hitman's Bodyguard. Uh, I'd like you to know that this script was on the blacklist. You would feel differently about that film. Yeah, I did enjoy watching the Justice League trailer in IMAX. And, oh yeah, me um, too. Actually, what was funny was the guy when he did his little presentation was like, "Oh, this we managed to convince the the, the distributors of the film to give us three trailers." Uh, in IMAX format for you to watch and the trailers were Star Wars and everyone was like woo yeah. and Blade Runner 49 woo and then Justice League and it was like <laughs> nothing and really like, no and, and he oh, said that dear. every single time I've done that speech that's been the reaction to Justice oh, that's League terrible bit. man I think that's interesting you though isn't it that back to who is it Sony you've got that one no it's uh, Warner Brothers have got the DC oh, Universe ouch, or something ouch, like that. ouch 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 that's no good at all is it <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the only thing I can hope there is it's more of a joke than it is serious I don't know but I think I sort of agree with you it means that there's some sort of more meaningfulness to the film because it's shot in IMAX or something like that and I don't think that's true because what would you do if you saw uh, a Catherine Heigl rom-com in IMAX or that's exactly my point but you'd st- it's the presentation in particular anyway it just yeah alright let's, let's leave that there I think we made our point clear uh, Cal finishes off by saying enjoying the podcast as ever keep it up Thanks very much for getting in touch, Cal. Thanks. Uh, and we've also got a tweet from Nicholas who says, at Superbelly Bros, hashtag Bonanza. Do you remember that, Phil? Or was it Bonanza? Bonanza. Do you not remember that? Is That's... that what we're going to call the bonus? But then Years we... <laughs> ago. That was the key. That was the code word. <laughs> to, that people could tweet to prove oh, yeah. they listened to the end. <laughs> I forgot That's old that. now, man. That's deep cuts. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, but he goes on, let me reassure you about your fear of swallowing spiders at night. It is fake news, hashtag. And uh, he's uh, linked to an article on it as well. So you relieved? Yeah, I mean, but I was asleep, so I, ne- I never didn't notice anyway. But, you know, thanks for keeping us honest there, Nicholas. I appreciate it. And good to know, to be honest, that I haven't swallowed a lot of spiders. So they can't, I mean, I'm sure you they have. They can't lay eggs in my lungs, for example, <laughs> and then crawl out through Is my nose. Is that a thing? <laughs> well, that's what I imagined happening. That was my point. It's always scary in your mind, Laurie. It's always exactly. scary. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, listen, listeners, if this makes no sense to you, as ever, uh, have a listen to the very end of the show after the end music uh, finishes. It's a secret. Well, it isn't a secret anymore, is it? Yeah, I know. You're telling everyone about the bonus. (laughs) Uh, Okay. And a final one here from Sam. He says uh, he's given us a picture perfect, Phil, unusually. Thank you very much for getting in touch about that. This is, listeners, a scene in a film that is so perfectly done. You could, you know, stand on a a, a pulpit or whatever, and you could just do it. You could speak about it for 20 minutes because you love it that much. Uh, Laurie's done ones on Lost in Translation, like the perfect night out. Yeah, and a fugitive in the pipe scene. I've done one on... You did Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I did that one most recently. Laurie did some good music on that. Crash Tiger Hidden Dragon, that was your other one. Oh yeah, the Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon fight, that was good. Basically, it's just great movie scenes. I think we called it must-seen sometimes. Must-seen or picture-perfect. And yeah. Sam helpfully does put both of those in there. <laughs> just and cover he says, the bases. check this out, listeners, The Lion King Stampede. Particularly, spoiler, Mufasa's death. Everything is staged so well, you know Scar wants to kill Simba and Mufasa. Simba has been prepped to be fooled all along. Uh, up to that point, and Mufasa demonstrates his kingliness awesomely, he says. That's true, actually. Very self-sacrificial and willing to risk everything for his son. And that's largely down to the fact that he gets hurt in the in the process a lot. Oh, yeah, he gets, it's very manly. And he, has <laughs> no, to, he gets taken away and he's kind of getting powered around and they show him getting beaten up even though he's this big, strong lion. He's getting absolutely destroyed it's by these buffalo. It's a good bit when the buffalo knocks into his cheek and Simba flies out <laughs> and he goes, it's like a proper <laughs> little roar. Uh, he goes on, the music and the action is just incredible at building tension. That is Hans Zimmer at one, some of his very best is that the No King No King song yeah 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 Fan- no brilliant King. piece of music no. is that great. actually them singing No King no come on but in I... my head it's always No King <laughs> No King No 
king. That bit, right? Yeah, yeah. I always thought they were saying no king. <laughs> sex, sex is confirming. Uh, the scar shows his cunning and evilness without having to say his intentions because he already did in a song previously. And you can see his motivation behind wanting to be king as his brother seems to sort of despise him. And you can see Scar's jealousy throughout the film. That's true. It's a nice, but it's a perfect button on that scene that doesn't throw in any sort of it doesn't explain what he's doing. Doesn't it just need says, to. long live the king. Yeah, that is an awesome line, isn't it? Betrayal is felt so strongly. And even as a young kid, I remember hating Scar after that. The bit when he puts the, the claws into um, Mufasa, when he's cl- clinging onto the cliff face. Brother, help me! Yeah. Oh, brutal. That's oh. painful, isn't it? Oh. And that's a brilliant, a little bit of foresight from the Disney uh, director. I'm not sure who it was who directed that. Because, of course, then they bring that back later. And that is what cues Simba's act of sort of heroism isn't it because Scar throws his uh, claws in to Simba and we all know oh here it comes again he's going to die again very simple uh, sort of foreshadowing and all that sort of stuff but brilliantly done Uh, Mufasa's realisation face that his brother is going to kill him oh yeah the eyes widening begins the feels and then the uber poignant scene with Simba and Mufasa oh I want to see that's the worst I was having a big discussion with some of my friends about what the saddest moment in Disney films was and then what happened was we ended up having like a contest where we just played it. We were having like a party and we started playing these different well, the sad moods. Sad moods. <laughs> and so there's this argument about whether or not it was Bambi or whether or not it was the Lion King. You know, Dad, please yeah, wake yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And then my friend Jacob, he was saying it's it's when in Robin Hood when the little mice get their money stolen. Oh, and apparently that just makes him tear up. Like, that every is time. horrible in Robin Hood. You forget that. He it, says that's the saddest moment in all of Disney films. I, I thought Mufasa dying was more sad, but there you, you know, go. I would, it's interesting, actually. That's a really... We should actually do that as a comparison because it also shows Disney's progress through the decades because Bambi... I rewatched that recently while I was having to talk about the 75th anniversary. And what's really remarkable about that sequence in particular is that it's dealt with in kind of a stoic fashion by comparison with The Lion King, which is done in a much more emotional way. Like Scar says, you've got to run away, but then he goes to Timon and Pumbaa and he spends ages being really depressed, doesn't he? There's guilt and, and grief. Yeah, and it takes him a really long time to work through that. And in fact, that's the major sort of point of the film, isn't it? He's got to overcome it and go back and face up to his Rafiki star. Whereas in Bambi, you see Bambi alone, horribly alone, saying, Mother, there's a nasty moment when he runs into the den. He says, we made it, Mother, we made it. But his mother didn't make it. And But what's amazing is that then after that, the snow starts to fall. He wanders around. He's totally lost. And his dad turns up, says, your mother can't be with you anymore. And that's it. And then they walk away into the horizon. It's incredibly powerful. Are you familiar with Bambi? Yeah. It's a very powerful moment. But it's just interesting that that's it. That's the last really you hear of Bambi's mother. It's gone. It's a stoic moment as compared to a more emotional moment. Do you see what I'm saying there? Am I overplaying mm. my hand? No, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting observation. <laughs> Thanks for saying. So we've completely trampled all over uh, Sam's picture perfect. Because uh, he says, boom, tears it. after Mufasa. It Every is time super tears. The twisting feeling as you see Simba become convinced his pathetic roaring is what caused all of this. That's right. Row. And then, <laughs> the, yeah, scripted perfectly, scored awesomely. And as an inciting incident for change, ooh, uh, could not be better. And then he goes on to say, have you done the Matrix agent fight? That is definitely another. Got to do it. Which one is that? So that, I believe, is you when the, Neo is in, in the, the first subway. One. Yeah, the first Matrix. Oh, that is such a good fight. Well, let's cover it, maybe. Maybe that's a pitch perfect to do. It sounds like you're up for that, Phil. 
Oh, it's hard though. It's hard giving justice to these must scenes. Well, that was that was really brilliant, listeners. That's what we love you to do. If you absolutely love a scene so much that you think you could just talk about all the elements that you know are perfectly aligned and make it beautiful, why not do what Sam just did there? Send in a nice detailed email, and we would love to read that out and probably ruin it by adding our own comments <laughs> our own <little> <laughs> all the way through. Uh, but that is it thanks so much everyone for getting in touch on emails and tweets keep them coming in superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on twitter and as Phil's been reminding us give us a plus one when you agree with us or a minus one if you don't and we'll do our best to add those up uh, honestly and truthfully (laughs) at the end of the season there you go next week we're going to be doing something slightly different as you might have heard in what we've been watching we are not going to be doing any new releases there aren't really that many coming out or any at all I might go and see Rough Night we'll wait and see maybe but it doesn't seem like there's a big kind of big ticket item to review and talk about so we're going to do an extended episode of what we've been watching so send in your thoughts on previous films we've reviewed and also suggest some films for us to review for that episode as well yeah we'll do our best i'm not making any promises because you never know if you get the email in on wednesday there's no chance no time (laughs) all right okay thanks guys thanks listeners thanks so much for tuning in to episode 36 of season 2 hope you enjoyed the ride hope you enjoyed the films not the strongest week I guess in a cinema although Detroit sounds like the one to go for Detroit is an interesting one I think people will react differently to how I did for me it just yeah it couldn't sit well for me afterwards it was a difficult watch a well directed watch but yeah as you heard in my review tough well yeah and I'm expecting angry emails from horror fans who go to watch Limehouse Golem and love it I still hate it and I'll take on all comers Uh, and then in terms of Dark Tower, I'm expecting no emails because I don't think many people have gone to see it. No. I think most people can smell it's a dud. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? And can I recommend to everyone yet again to go and see Logan Lucky because I think that film needs to succeed at the box office. I think it deserves to and I think its financial model sort of makes it quite an imperative. I'd love to see us, like Steven Soderbergh, move away from financially irresponsible marketing because it means that smaller budget films actually have a chance of being made. And you think it's good, don't you? Yeah, I liked it. I think it's, like I say, I think it deserves your ticket and it's fun, it's good. Um, but it's weirdly just not performing well. I, I kind of think it must have just been bullied. You don't know about it. Well, yeah, but I think that's not the fault necessarily of the film so much as that everyone else has... You know, I mean, have you ever seen the series Nashville, Phil? If you'd watched Nashville, you know how this works. Oh, is that the uh, country When Raina James stuff? is releasing her new country album, she has to fight for shelf space. Uh, and, she's, you know, it's really backbiting. All these artists are buying up shelf space to stop someone else promoting their single. The, it's a very competitive world out there. So who knew? let's who do Logan Lucky a favour. All right, listeners, tune back in next week for more of this kind of shambly, rambly stuff, uh, mainly what we've been watching reviews. Looking forward to that. It'll be a fun one. But other than that, have a really great week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You don't want to do the Toblerone bonus. Let's do it another time. It's not a bad one. It's just we've done it enough already. Have, we done, it on, have we done it on the show? I've done it in life. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was my joke at Christmas time. Do you it remember it? It was a it? fun one. Yeah, I enjoyed it. One. All right, listeners, the game is how many ways can you say the word Toblerone? And that is T-O-B-L-E-R-O-N-E. Like the chocolate bar. I would like to offer you this. Toblerone. Toblerone. Toblerone is a good one as well. But you can do a lot more. Toblerone as well. Toblerone. Toblerone. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of different ways to say Toblerone. <laughs> Why not amuse yourself and your friends at a party with that game? Yeah, there you go. Toblerone. <laughs> I think it's easy. It's just one of those words. Uh, my, I can give you another one, Phil, if you like. Oh, this one's kind of boring as well. <laughs> You say that about my No, 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 you're also boring. That's kind of boring as well. well you, were just, you were the one who said it. Uh, okay, hold on.
Yeah, all right, I'll do this one. So I was listening to radio the other day, and The Power of Love came on. The Power of Not Love. Not that one, oh, the better one. It's The Power of Love. The Back to the Future one. Yeah, Back to the Future, man. Makes a one-man thing. I don't know the words. Another man sing. Woo! Do you know what I'm doing, right? You love the voice. Was that good there? Yes. Thank you so much. Woo! I've told you before, the woo is an amazing, like, closer because that's all people remember they forget the terrible singing that came before woo. It. just woo everyone's in the mood <laughs> michael jackson yeah man uh, uh but the point is that song is so good but it really like in in sort of towards the middle third of the song middle third what am i talking about um the end of the middle third of the song towards the third third of the song oh dearie me uh it has a middle eight and it just made me totally realise how many 80s songs that are kind of awesome have got terrible middle eight. Do you know what the middle eight for that one is? No. So, you know, you can pitch that, right? And you're grooving around. Don't need no credit card to ride this train. Brilliant. Who doesn't yeah. love that? And then it goes like this. What is that, man? It's like they feel like they need to put in some rubbish to remind you how good the rest of the song is. It's <laughs> like here, the get Vita depressed. Tross. <laughs> yeah, get depressed and confused for a minute and then bring it back in with a beat. Oh, good, it's back. It's like that weird bit in the dance floor on a disco or, or like a club night when it's just a bit of a lame part of the song and everyone's just doing the side-to-side dance. Yeah, like Looking at that? each other, like waiting for it all to kind of kick in. So a middle eight man, they do that to sort of break up the flow of the song because otherwise you might get clued into the fact they're just in verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But it's just a trend i noticed bad middle eights in 80 songs see if you can find some yes the biggish biggish <laughs> what's our funny little gimmicky thing to get the show going what do you mean you mean what this week yeah we've done like star trek we've done we did diving we've done driving the thing is these things work best when they're spontaneous don't they phil so i might cut out that last <laughs> this little bit of conversation <laughs> the slightly apathetic conversation <laughs> Yeah, so this is 50 years after the 12th Street riots. Um, there was, I think, the police down there raided a uh, bar that had too many people in it and they weren't, I didn't. I don't think they had the right licenses or something. And because there were so many people there, it became a riot. They didn't like the police turning up. There were fights, there were bottles thrown and there was aggression towards the police. The police uh, and just general law enforcement took that very, very seriously and put out a very high force presence in the streets to try and calm the rioting down. But, you know, like these things do, it sort of spread and the attitude spread. And so when some local policemen were walking down a street near the Algiers Motel, which was known as a site of prostitution, it was known to police already, and they heard what sounded like gunshots from the place, uh, they overreacted, perhaps, and went in and uh, rounded up uh, some African-American youths there, intimidated them, some of those youths got killed, and then uh, more than that, basically it was a sort of legal cover-up um, and allegations of corruption got thrown at these police officers and the police department in general because there was, you know, all these disputes about what actually happened and why it happened. And should these police people, or not just police, I think they were security volunteers, should they be prosecuted for murder? And it became a massive uh, sort of beacon of racial prejudice in 60s America. Is that too much info, Phil? You're making That's faces way at me. too much info. Well, I told you, I looked up at it, about it because I was on the radio. This is what you get you when you get Laurie Bailey on. away the whole film. <laughs> no! You have, genuinely. But that's that's historical, right? But I didn't, I didn't know about any should of that. Should I not have said that? I don't think you should say any oh, of that. Well, it's done now. Come on. The Man in Black 
flees across the desert. The man in black flees across. Uh, you'd have heard this in the blooper. 